From the time Yaakov sends his sons down to Egypt to get food until the climactic end of the story, Yosef's behavior is puzzling and even cruel, one might say. After all, as we know, Yosef recognizes the brothers, and yet he doesn't reveal himself. Instead, he puts them through hoops, making them go through all sorts of difficult challenges, very difficult situations. He accuses them of being spies, but then, in a confusing way, lets them go home anyway, on condition if they have a future visit, they bring their youngest brother, but he imprisons Shimon, puts money in their bag, framing them. When they come back, he then has a lavish meal with them, like, what's going on? He likes them, he doesn't like them. He plants the goblet in the bag, he takes and threatens to take Binyam into prison. I mean, the whole thing is bizarre, it's confusing, puzzling, and as I say, in many senses, very cruel to the brothers. What is going on? How do we understand Yosef's behavior? So there are two basic approaches in the classical Mepharshim, the first exemplified by the Ramban. Ramban explains that Yosef saw himself as an instrument of the divine will, nothing less. That everything he was doing, he felt he needed to do in fulfillment of his divine mission. You remember that Yosef understood in last week's Parsha that his dreams were not mere dreams or psycho-projections or anything of the sort, but rather they were actual genuine prophecy, nevuah, and that these dreams were prophesying that he would be the leader of the family. Now obviously the plan didn't go the way he presumably expected, but nevertheless after all of these years, everything he had been through, all of a sudden the brothers just show up, and they're desperate, and they need him. He's the leader. And all of a sudden Yosef realizes, you know what, it might not have happened the way I expected, but now I have an opportunity to actually make the Nevoah come true, to bring this plan to fruition. Therefore, as the Ramban explains, he makes sure eventually that all of his brothers, including Binyamin, come down to Egypt, where they must accept Yosef's leadership in fulfillment of that first dream with the sheaves of wheat all bowing down to him. And then later, eventually, the entire family comes down to Egypt in fulfillment of the second dream, where not only the brothers, but even the sun and the moon, even the parents, are all bowing down to him. As a proof to this approach, the Ramban points out something very, very uh, fascinating, which is easy to overlook, but when you think about it, the Ramban seems to have a very compelling point. When Yosef first recognizes the brothers, Vayakar Yosef as he recognized them, they did not recognize him. The immediately next thing we read is, Yosef Yosef remembers, remembers what? The dreams. What dreams? The dreams from all those years ago. In his youth, the dreams of the sheaves of wheat and the stars and the moon, etc. And then finally, the very next thing we read to conclude this pasuk, he accuses them of being spies. And the Ramban points out that this reference to the dreams seems to be a total non-sequitur. What is it doing here? It doesn't seem to have any connection. In the story, we know Yosef recognizes the brothers. They didn't recognize him. And for reasons that we're trying to understand, instead of saying, hey, it's me, Yosef, he accuses them of being spies, even though undoubtedly he knows that they weren't. But what is this idea of the dreams doing right here in the middle of everything? Says Ramban, that's exactly the point. Because once he sees them, he says, Ah, now we have a chance to fulfill that destiny, to make that prophecy not only come alive, but become true, to actualize it, to bring it to fruition. He remembers the dreams, not vain uh, you know, dreams of, of uh, glory by a teenager, but rather actual prophecy. Now he has a chance. Ah! I can fulfill the dreams by what? 
by orchestrating this whole, choreographing this whole scenario, or by accusing them of spies, one thing lead to another, etc., and gets them all down here. Fascinating interpretation of this story and Yosef's behavior by the Ramban. It was all orchestrated by Yosef in order to do what he thought was his destiny and his obligation to make these dreams come true, to fulfill the divine prophecy. Another approach, which is entirely different, is suggested by the Kliyakar, and as he himself notes, it's already alluded to, to some extent, in the Abarbanel before him. And the Kliyakar explicitly rejects the Ramban. He says, it's not Yosef's job to make a prophecy come true. Because you had a prophecy, you don't get to treat people poorly or do all sorts of things which are otherwise inexplicable. If Hashem wants the prophecy to come to fruition, he'll take care of that. That wasn't what Yosef was supposed to be doing. Rather, what was he doing? According to the Kliyakar, yes, in Hachinami, he was punishing them. He was making things difficult for them. He was making them suffer because it was a form of expiation, it was a form of atonement, of giving them an opportunity to do tshuva. As the Kliyakar writes so powerfully, so beautifully, He did this, yes, he caused them pain, but he did it, and he did it deliberately. But he did it, in a certain sense, altruistically, to help cleanse them from their sin, by selling their brother a sin which ostensibly is unforgivable. Yosef was helping through this difficult process of having them achieve kapara. And therefore they needed to go through a process where they not only suffered, but also eventually step by step in ways that undid the damage that they had done, they could truly rehabilitate themselves. And the Kliyakar, in fact, goes through numerous parts of the story and suggests that they correspond to things that the brothers had done wrong. For example, he accuses them of being spies because, says the Kliyakar, when he finally, when he eventually uh, found them, fulfilling his father's uh, desire to go find his brothers, they actually thought he wasn't just coming to see them or help them with uh, their shepherding, but rather he thought they thought he was coming to spy on them and see what they were doing to t- tattletale back to their father. Therefore, just like they thought he was a spy, he accused them of being a spy. They threw him in a pit, and therefore he throws them in the mishmar, in the jail for three days before he decides to just keep Shimon and send the rest of them home. As Rashi says, it was a jail, that mishmar. And we know from when Yosef was in jail, the jail in Egypt was a dungeon. It was down below. So just like they had been th- he had been thrown in a pit, they were thrown in a pit, etc., etc., until finally, when they have a chance to save themselves and abandon their brother, not only a brother, but Rachel's only other son, Instead, they decide to have filial responsibility to stand up for their brother. And who is it? None other than Yehuda, the same Yehuda who had originally suggested to sell Yosef. He's the one who steps forward and says, we will not abandon Binyamin. We are all for one and one for all. When Yosef finally sees that, says the Kliyakar, he realizes his mission is done. They have all done tshuva. And now he can reveal himself. As Yosef begins building his new life as the viceroy of Egypt, he is blessed with two sons. And the Torah tells us in Perak Mem Aleph the names of those two sons. Yikra Yosef es Shem HaBachor Menashe. He called his firstborn son Menashe. Kinashani Elohim es Kol Amali ve'es Kol Beis Avi. Because Hashem has helped me forget all of my difficulties and my father's home. And the second son he calls Ephraim. Ki Hifrani Elohim Be'eretz Oni. Because Hashem has helped me multiply, become great in this Difficult land, in this land. So the Torah is telling us not only of his two sons, but the names and where the names come from, the messages contained therein. Roshlomo Yosef Zevin, in his classic work, the Torah Ula Moadim, explains that it's even more than that. These names are of great significance and relate to none less than the essence of 
the Jewish people. The basis of this startling claim by Rav Zevin is a medrash in Bracious Rabbah, earlier on in Bracious, in which it traces a line which it claims is the line of the heart of the Jewish people. The main semblance of the Jewish people comes from, says the Medrash Rabbah, Rachel. Even though she's the mother of only two of Yaakov's sons, she is the anchor, the main point of the Jewish people. The Pasuk says in Perchavtes, Rachel Akara. Rachel was barren, but in a play on words, the Medrash says not Akara, but Ikaro, Shel Bayis. She was the main part of the home, and not just Yaakov's home, but the Jewish home for all history. As we are known in the famous Pasuk in the Navi Yirmiyahu, Rachel al Baneha. Rachel is crying for her children, and she's not just crying for the two tribes of Yosef and Minyamin, she's crying for the entire Jewish people who says the Medrash are referred to as Baneha, Rachel's children, because she is Mama Rachel, she is the mother of all of the Jewish people. But then the Medrash continues to say, it's not just that we are known as Rachel's children, but we are specifically connected by the Navi to Yosef, as the Pasuk in the fifth chapter of the Navi Amos refers to the Jewish people as Sheiris Yosef, we are the remnant of Yosef. And then concludes the Medrash, not only are we known by Rachel and Yosef, we are even known by Yosef's children. As another Pasuk, also well known from Yirmiyahu says, Haben Yakir Li Ephraim, we are like Hashem's beloved child, Ephraim. So, Commenting on this measure, says Rav Zevin, if the essence of the Jewish people goes to Rachel, Yosef, and then his children, it follows that Menashe and Ephraim represent two important kochos, two sources of strength, two, two values that define the Jewish people. Their characteristics and strengths were implanted in our national DNA. Rav Zevin goes on to explain what these two points of strength are. Menashe relates to and symbolizes the idea of sur meirah, of protection from, and when necessary, even destruction of negative influences. As his name indicates, Nashani Elohim, as Kalam Ali, Hashem has removed, and help me forget, all of my difficulties. We've removed the bad things, the difficult things in life. It is looking towards and protecting ourselves from outside negative influences or bad things in the past. However, the second son, Ephraim, represents not Surmeira, but rather the opposite. Asetov, growing, building on the positive, forward-looking. As his name indicates, Ephraim Elokim Eretz Anyi. Yosef says, the second son, Ephraim, represents all the blessing that Hashem has given me, all the good that Hashem has given me in Egypt. And therefore, says Rav Zevin, what the Medrash is teaching us is by associating us not just with both Ephraim and Menashe, Yosef's children, but specifically Haben Yakirli, Ephraim, the Jewish people are called by the name of Ephraim, that teaches us that even though both of these ideas are needed, we need both the Sur Meirah and the Asetov. Nevertheless, the main and defining characteristic of the Jewish people is to be positive and growth-oriented, the approach that is symbolized in the name Ephraim. Rav Zeban goes on to explain so beautifully that this idea can also be found in one of the main ideas and halachos of Hanukkah, which so often, although not this year, falls out during Parshas Miketz. The well-known machlokas that the Gemara and Shabbos tells us between Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel, how to light the Hanukkah candles. Beis Shammai is of the opinion that we start with eight candles on the first night, and then poches v'holech, we decrease by one each night, so there's only one candle lit on the first day. Beis Hillel, of course, have the opposite view, and this is our practice, 
of Mosif Vaholech. We start with only one candle, but we add a candle each night until we have eight candles finally on the last night of Hanukkah. Rav Zevin explains that fire can serve two different and important functions. Fire burns, and it also provides light. It burns out the bad and removes impurities, and this is of vital importance in Jewish life and Jewish thought. As the Pasuk tells us, sometimes we must destroy, obliterate, and burn out the evil and the bad. However, it's also an important value in Judaism that fire provides light, clarity, and inspiration. Torah and mitzvot are compared to ner mitzvah v'torah or, a candle and light, intended not only to enlighten our eyes, to help us see better, but to inspire and enlighten our heart. Rav Zevin explains that these two spiritual powers and forces were present during the Hanukkah miracle as the Hashmanayim needed and utilized both of these strengths. First, they had to defeat and remove the Greeks and destroyed their influence. But then, they purified the base of Mikdash, spread the light outward. The Machlokes between Basham and Hillel, therefore, says Rav Zevin, is not whether both are needed or both existed in the holiday. They both are needed and they both did exist in the miracle story. However, the question is, which one is the main one? Which one should we emphasize? Beishamai focuses on the need to destroy Greek influence. So we start with eight candles, summoning all of our strength to burn out the evil. And then as the process proceeds, and we are successful a little bit more each day by day, the evil recedes, and we have need for less and less fire until only one candle is lit on the last day. But Beishil will focus not on the fire, but on the light. No need to vanquish the darkness. If we just add light, the darkness will disappear all on its own. And therefore, each day we add a candle to symbolize the growing light. Step by step, increasing positivity into the light overwhelms the darkness. Like the name of Ephraim, which focuses on Hashem's blessing and goodness, Basil focuses on increasing that same blessing and goodness. The Navi uses the name of Ephraim to symbolize the Jewish people, and the Halacha follows Basil because while other strategies are often needed, but our primary spiritual message is mostly for Holich, adding holiness and blessing. It's impossible to overstate the significance of Paro's dreams. It's because of these dreams that Yosef gets an audience with Paro, and it is that fact which eventually launches his career as the Viceroy of Egypt. And it is from that position which he is eventually able to save his father, his brothers, his entire family from the devastating famine that they are suffering from. And that story, over 200 plus years, eventually leads to not only the servitude, but thankfully the Geula, the redemption, the freedom from Egypt, and really it's that story which is the beginning of all of Jewish history. So really, without exaggeration, one could say, everything goes back to the story of Paro's dreams. Everything goes back to those seven fat and skinny cows, and the second dream that those seven healthy versus weak and withered stalks of wheat. After Paro had those dreams, the Torah tells us that he summons his chachamim ufartumim, his wise men and his sorcerers, v'yisaper paro lehem es chalamo. He tells them his dreams, but ein poter osam leparo. How do you translate the second half of that verse? Perhaps it means that none of them did, or none of them would interpret the dream, but it also could be read as none of them could interpret the dream. That is to say, they may have tried, may have offered explanations, interpretations, but none of them were successful in meeting Paro's satisfaction. Ain poterosum is that none of them would or none of them could interpret the dream. It's this ambiguity, I think, which leads the rabbis Chazal in the Medrash, both in Breshis Rabbah, here and in the Yalkut Shimoni, 
and Rashi actually quotes in an abbreviated fashion this tradition from Chazal, they interpret it in the second suggestion that I offered. That is to say, potrim hayu osam, avalo leparo. That is to say, they did offer suggestions, but none of them ever were enough for paro. Paro never heard anything that he said. Paro never found satisfaction in their interpretations. And what were their interpretations? Now that Chazal are, in a very fascinating way, telling us that, in fact, his wise men did offer suggestions, what did they suggest? What were their interpretations? So one explanation of the Medrash, which is the one that Rashi himself quotes, is that they told Paro that the dream symbolized seven daughters would be born to him, but all seven would die. He'd bury all seven of them. The second interpretation suggested by the Medrash, which Rashi actually does not quote for whatever reason, is that it mentions, it refers to the fact that Paro would conquer seven nations, but eventually seven weaker areas of territory would rebel against him. All of this is really quite fascinating and provides really incredible texture to the story. However, it doesn't address, let alone answer, what I think is the key question, which is so pitiful, pivotal, as we've seen, for all of Jewish history, which is, why did Paro not listen to them? Why did Paro not accept the interpretation of his devoted, long-standing advisors and sorcerers? Why would he instead prefer and accept the interpretation of someone from the lowest rung of society, someone who he certainly had no prior relationship with, a Hebrew slave who had just been taken from the dungeon? On this incredibly important question, the Torah text seems to be silent. However, the various midrashim here do seem to be sensitive to the question and offer various suggestions. And I'd like to share three of them with you. Each one is independently significant, but they all share a certain common thrust. The Medrash Rabbah here uh, that I previously quoted does not explicitly address the question, but seems to be concerning itself with that issue and implies towards the end of its commentary that really the key to everything was the fact that Yosef went last. It was not a coincidence, but it was actually behashkacha. It was divine providence which had Yosef go last. We know that very often that last person to get the interview, the last person to speak, often that is considered a, a privileged position. It's like in baseball, having home field advantage. You get, to la- you get last licks. You're batting in the bottom of the ninth. Yosef went last. And as the Medrash explains, it was not a coincidence that the butler, the Sarah Mosh- Mashkin, had completely forgotten about Yosef until after all the Khartoumim and all the Chachamim had offered their suggestions. It was only then that he just remembered, suddenly, as it were, that Yosef was still in the dungeon and Yosef had successfully interpreted his dream. Says the Medrash, not a coincidence at all. It was after everyone else had gone, after Parah was tired and even depressed by hearing what he had heard, then the stage was set for him to understand and totally be captivated by Yosef's suggestion. Very interesting, fascinating first approach. However, there are two other approaches that are mentioned in the Medrash Sechel Tov, which is a somewhat lesser known collection of Midrashim, also here in Bereshus and on our Parsha. The first suggestion in this Medrash Sechel Tov is Nizkar Miyad Piterona Chalom Ki Lo Gamhu El Niskar. Fascinating. The Medrash suggests that Paro not only dreamt about the cows and the stalks of wheat, Paro, in his own dreams, had dreamt about the interpretation, about the famine, etc. However, when he woke up from his dreams, he remembered the content of the dreams, the cows and the stalks of wheat, but he just couldn't remember. It was on the tip of his tongue. We've all had that experience when we wake up from a dream and we sort of know it, but we just can't, we can't put our words to it. But he sort of remembered it. 
And it was only when Yosef put words to it, when Yosef himself gave the interpretation, that's when it resonated and it rung a familiar bell with Parao. And once he heard Yosef say it, he knew it was true because then that triggered in his own subconscious, it brought back to life the fact that he himself had dreamt that interpretation. That's a second very fascinating suggestion made here in the Medrash. And finally, the Medrash Sechotov, working off the fact that the Pasuk tells us that not only was the interpretation of Yosef find favor in Paro's eyes, but also Ube'inei Kalavadav, everyone around him, all of the um, wise men and sorcerers also liked Yosef's interpretation. And really, the implicit question, and it's really something we should think about, is why? And it wasn't, there's nothing obviously brilliant about it. Moreover, they were being displaced. You can only imagine in palace intrigue and politics being petty and you know self-serving as we all know it to be. I would imagine they all would have immediately shot down what Yosef said. After all, who wants to be outdone and shown up by the slave? And yet the Torah tells us they all liked it. Why, says the Medrash? Because he wasn't simply a negative, pessimistic, or fatalistic. Rather, Nasan Eitzah, Lachios, Yoshiaretz. He gave them constructive advice and had positive ambition and optimism for their future. When the brothers originally come down to Egypt, we know that Yosef accuses them of being spies. As the story unfolds, we read in the middle of Perak Membez that Yosef, the viceroy, makes a demand or a deal that he offers them, depending on your perspective. And he says that, in fact, he's willing to give them a chance to prove their innocence. Most of them will stay with him. He'll put them in jail. And one of them should go back. And if they can eventually return with the youngest brother to prove the veracity of their story, he'll accept their innocent explanation that they were there just to get food. As the Pasuk then continues, he throws the brothers in jail for three days. And then we read in Perak Membe's Pasuk Gilchas, that Yosef calls them back and he changes his plan. And he says, in fact, I fear God, I have rethought what I said. And in fact, now he tells them, let's reverse, let's invert the whole thing. Instead of only one brother returning, now I would say only one brother, stay in jail. But the rest of you, Go back to your father. Tupsukim after that, in Pasuk Havalef, we read of the dramatic and somewhat, I would say, emotional, even heart-wrenching Pasuk. And the brothers at this very moment have this incredible act of self-reflection. And they say to each other, they finally say to themselves, you know why all this is happening to us? This completely crazy, outlandish accusation that we're spies and throwing us in jail. It's all because we saw our brother's pain, his suffering. We threw him into the pit. He begged for his life and we ignored him. Al-Kain, that's why all these terrible things are happening to us. Incredible, small slice of the story, a section of just a few psukim, but one filled with a tremendous amount of drama. And perhaps a, great mes- perhaps a great message for us as well. Of Shimon Schwab in his Sefer, Mayan Beis HaShoeva, asks a simple question. Why only now? Why is it only at this moment that the brothers have this moment of self-reflection, even of repentance, and make a connection between the challenge that they're currently undergoing and their previous mistake and misdeed of selling Yosef? After all, this was after the initial accusation that they were spies. 
perhaps already at that point, if not at some other point earlier, they should have perhaps come to the conclusion that maybe these sorrows that they're now experiencing may be in fact connected to and punishments for the terrible sin that they did to their brother and how they lied to their father. And yet it's Dafka at this moment when they actually get a breath of fresh air, of good news, that only one of them has to stay in jail. The rest of you have to go back. That's the moment when all of a sudden they start suspecting maybe there's a connection, a divine, spiritual, mystical, metaphysical causality between what's happening to them now and what they had done to their brother all those years before. Why Dafka now do they make this connection? So Schwab gives a beautiful explanation. He says their self-reflection and ultimately their self-correction was inspired by what they heard from the Viceroy, what they heard from Yosef. The Viceroy of Mitzrayim had said, originally one brother should return and the rest of you should sit in jail. And then three days later, he changed his mind because as he tells them, I am a God-fearing person. I have rethought what I had previously said. I have rethought my previous position. Why should all of you have to suffer? Leave one brother here as a kind of guarantee, as a guarantor that you'll come back. And the rest of you, in the meantime, go back to your father, bring the food to your necessary food to your family. In other words, says of Schwab, Yosef was teaching them, and to their credit, they were listening and learning a tremendous lesson. If someone has Yira Shamayim, Esalokimani Yare, as the Pasuk says, if you have genuine fear of heaven, then you're never supremely and 100% confident that you know you did the right thing. On a big decision, on a complicated issue, you're willing to rethink your decision. You're not stubborn, you're not arrogant. You're willing to rethink and reconsider, even decisions that you had made previously. Once they saw that someone as powerful as the viceroy was willing to rethink his position out of a fear of God, the brothers said to themselves, we also made a big decision. We also had rationalized our decision to sell Yosef. We may think, objectively, it may have been wrong, but the brothers in that moment, they had plenty of rationalizations for what they did. They thought it was right at the time. But now they see if the viceroy is willing to rethink his decisions because of a fear of heaven, so too they say to themselves, if we have Yerushalayim, shouldn't we be willing to consider? Shouldn't we be willing to reconsider and rethink our previous decisions? And it's only then, having been inspired, not only by the talk, but by the actions that were modeled by Yosef the Viceroy, they were inspired to follow that model and rethink their own actions. Schwab goes one step further, and with this insight, he explains a seemingly otherwise inexplicable phrase. In that pivotal pasuk, when Yosef finishes speaking and changes his mind, says, only one of you have to stay, right before we hear about the brothers having their moment of self-reflection, the pasuk, after Yosef told them, only one of you goes back, excuse me, only one of you stays, the rest of you can go home, then the Pasuk says, Vayasu came. And so they did. They did so. Now that alone, we would think, is basically telling us that the brothers in fact did what? What's Cain? Vayasu Cain? They went back. They went back to Canaan. But it's clear that that's not true. Because the very next Psukim talk about their moment of self-reflection, they're talking, they realize it's all because of what they've done to Yosef all those years before, and the Torah then tells us, two psukim later, Pasuch of Gimel, that they didn't realize, ki Yosef, ki They didn't realize that, in fact, there was an interpreter that they understood, Yosef understood what they were saying. And in fact, it was so emotional for Yosef to overhear and eavesdrop what he heard, that he actually has to step away in private and cries. So it's clear from the continuation that they were having this conversation in the presence of Yosef. They had not left, yet left Egypt. So what is that 
phrase a few psukim earlier mean, came. they did what? They hadn't yet gone back. What is it talking about? What did they do? Says Rav Schwab, you know what it means? They did what Yosef did. They were like Yosef. Just like Yosef had rethought his position because of his Yerushalayim, Vayasu Kane. They were just like Yosef. They were also willing to rethink their previous decades-old position and rethink and make corrections. When Yosef is summoned from the jail and told to come to Paro to interpret his dreams, we read in Perak Memalef, Pasuk Yedalid, Vayishlach Paro Vikra Es Yosef, Paro called for him, they took him out of jail, the Yeritsuhu Minhabor, they took him very quickly out of the pit, out of the dungeon, the Galach, he had a shave, a haircut, the Yichalef Simosav, he had a change of clothing, and only then Vayavu El Paro, he actually went to speak to Paro. Commenting on the fact that Yosef had a shave and haircut before meeting Paro, Rashi says, Mifnei Kvod Hamalchus. He did so in order to show proper honor and due deference to the king. Perhaps one might think, just uh, reading this in the, in the story form, in the narrative, that uh, there's nothing necessarily virtuous or religious or halachic about that. It just may have been a reality. <laughs> in Paro's time and in front of Paro, of course, you had to dress appropriately. The fact that Yosef had to do that because that was the rule of Egypt, perhaps it would not be alone indicative of the fact that, from a halachic perspective, that is the right thing to do. But in fact, this Pasuk and this Rashi are brought as a source, or at least a hint, for the fact that, yes, there is such a halacha, known as Kvod Malchus, that halacha, in fact, does endorse such a posture. There's another Rashi uh, in the beginning of Sefer Shmos, when Moshe is first told to go to Paro, along with Aaron, to speak to him about getting the Jews out of Egypt. And there are also Rashi quotes from Chazal, the importance of having Kavod for Paro, speaking in a certain way, because he is the king. And these Rashis and these Psukim are quoted by Poskim as being referring to sources and hints at the fact that, yes, Halacha does see there to be an absolute obligation to show honor to a king, and not only a Jewish king, but as we see with Paro, even a non-Jewish king as well. There's a remarkable Gemara that goes even further, not just that when you happen to see the king that you should be dressed appropriately and speak appropriately. The Gemara Brachos on Daphne and says that a person should go out of their way if they have any opportunity to see a king, even a non-Jewish king, they should do so. And when so doing, there's a bracha that should be recited. The Gemara brings down a certain bracha that we would say in front of uh, a Jewish king, Baruch she'chalak michvodo l'reyav. But the Gemara also says that there's a bracha that you'd make on seeing a non-Jewish king, she'nasan michvodo l'reyosav. Now it's slightly different a terminology that's used in that bracha, it's a different nusach, and Mepharshim do discuss why there is that difference, but be that as it may, this is certainly a dramatic and unmistakable expression of the idea that halacha endorses the fact that we treat a seeing a Jewish and even non-Jewish king with incredible seriousness, and in fact there's a halacha, an obligation, to in fact show great, great kavod to the king. The Gemara actually goes on even further and talks about the urgency of trying to see a king and even a non-Jewish king because that's the closest thing that we can have in this world, the pageantry, all the honor that's given uh, to that monarch. Perhaps that's the only thing that we will be able to compare, please God, one day if we merit to see the Mashiach, all of the pageantry, all the honor, the royalty, the malchus of a Mashiach, well, it, we can only even begin to have a sense of that if we see a king or queen in, in our current 
milieu or at any other point in history pre-Messianic era. And therefore, the Gemara sees that as a good thing to try to experience, even for a moment, briefly, uh, witnessing and experiencing and seeing uh, royalty. A crucial question, of course, in our day and age, and already for, for many years, of course, is what counts as a king or a queen? What defines somebody as a monarch? Of course, we live in a, a world, which I would say for the most part is blessed, that there is almost no semblance of monarchy anymore. We live under democratically elected rulers and governments. Do you still make the bracha in such a situation? How do you define a king is it really only a king, capital K, queen, capital Q, or is there perhaps a more flexible definition? So the post can bring down from one of the earlier Rishonim, the Orchos Chaim, who quotes from an even earlier source, the Sefer Eshkol, that in fact it does not have to be just a king or queen, but rather anybody, whatever the title is, but anyone who has absolute power, which is defined as the ability, fairly or unfairly, but the person has the ability to kill another person, to kill one of his subjects, one of his citizens, just on his say-so, on his word alone, and there's no one who can stop him. It's totally his discretion. If a person has that type of absolute power, whatever the title is, doesn't matter, but if you have that kind of power, that person deserves a certain level of respect, and we would even make a bracha. The Chassam Sofer has a fascinating tshuva where he endorses this uh, criteria, and he speaks about uh, pre-modern Germany, which was, of course, a conglomeration of various states under a uh, a larger uh, you know, empire, but there was various s- states, and each one of them had what Rav the Chassam Sofer brings down in his tshuva. He says he refers to the leaders thereof as duksim, as dukes. So they didn't have the title of king, they had the title of duke. But nevertheless, as the Chassam Sofer, in their territory, in their area, they had absolute power, they could kill. Their children were called princen. He writes that word out with Hebrew letters, princen. They were princes. And therefore you see that even though they are not called king, they're called duke, but they have that power. And therefore, according to Chassam Sofer, you would make the bracha. What about a democratically elected uh, president or prime minister? We know that, thankfully, in the world that we live in, the countries that we live in, a president or a prime minister can't just put someone to death because they, they want to. They don't have that power. So what would you say? Should we make a bracha if a person would see a president or a prime minister? So there are different opinions among the post-scheme of the last generation or two. Ravavaj Yosef, for example, thinks, yes, we would make the bracha fully, because even if they can't kill a person, they have pardon power. And pardon power is also absolute and totally up to the discretion of the president or prime minister. That's worthy of a bracha. Other post-scheme, including, they say, in the name of Rav Soloveitchik, felt that it was a little bit of a question, and therefore he said to say the bracha, but not use Hashem's name, to be a little bit more cautious. And finally, there's a third view, echoed by post-scheme such as Rav Sternbach and Rav Aviner, who say, no, no bracha whatsoever. There's no absolute power. They can get impeached. There's checks and balances with the Congress. They're temporary. They're voted. They can be voted out. They have the power from the people, and therefore, no bracha. Lastly, some post-scheme discuss what about the inverse of that, which is a, a queen or a king, in the modern sense, like the Queen of England, who has no actual power, but she is a queen or a king. And there, the post game say that, in fact, you would make a bracha because a king is a king and a queen is a queen, no matter whether they have the absolute power uh, or not.